Dean was praying how what a privilege it is to hear God's people ask for prayers and to be able to, to pray. I mean, that, that's why our prayer meetings are not just something in the wind, brethren. It's, uh, it's a real time for us to be together. And so grateful, so thankful that uh, the Lord would give us that privilege to be able to do that. Now, as we uh, turn our uh, religious affections, if you will, to the Word of God this evening, uh, if you would turn with me to the book of Revelation, we'll be reading chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. We are entering in again to the, uh, the sixth vile judgment of God here, beginning in verse number 12. These are the words of God. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, uh, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. That's an important phrase that uh, he just makes there that John does under the inspiration of God. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Stunning, isn't it, brethren? Again, there's false miracles and false workings. And it's interesting how this particular text, though, it actually turns it around. It's quite interesting. We're going to look at that. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle. It is a quite amazing thing. We're going to look at this, that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Well, as I said, we're right in the, in the heat of the Lord God uh, sending out his angels to pour different vials upon the earth. And this evening we have reached the sixth vial, and it is a little bit different. It's a little bit unique. It's unlike the other five vials, and that it doesn't have any, a specific assault on humanity here as uh, God has been pouring out his, his wrath upon them, but rather God uses it to prepare them for what is coming. And it's interesting here, again, as we look at this text, how God is sovereign in all things, and we'll see that tonight, even in these the spirits of devils and how he uses them for his glory and his purpose. It really is quite an amazing thing. So the, the sixth angel here is commanded to pour his vial out on the Euphrates River, thereby causing it to dry up. Now, the Euphrates River, as we all know, amen, is one of the oldest rivers in recorded human history. I mean, at the very beginning, don't we, brother? And we understand that this is an important part of God's glorious plan here, what he's doing, it really is. It is one of the four rivers that was fed from the Garden of Eden. We remember that's why we know that it is indeed one of the oldest rivers that we find in recorded, inspired history. In fact, it is called the Great River five times in uh, sacred scripture as it flows some 1,800 miles. Amazing. It's still flowing, brother, and it's still a stunning thing. It flows 1,800 miles if you will, from the snow fields and the, the, the ice, you can think of the mountains, right, Mount Ararat, this is how it's fed, and it's melted, and it comes down, it flows down through Iraq, and then it dumps and empties itself into the Gulf, uh, if you will, there in the Persian Gulf. It was indeed, uh, it played, again, like I said, so many important roles that God used it for. He also used it as the eastern boundary, you remember this, 
when he gave the land, when he was giving out the land, if you will, to Abraham and to his descendants. It was the eastern boundary of the promised land. And so, again, I just want us to see this. You remember now, this is the second time that the Euphrates River in the book of Revelation is mentioned. It's the second time that God uses it for his specific glorious purposes here. But again, I want to remind us, look at Genesis chapter 2, just to remind us way back here again. Just I love to read the recorded history, the inspired recorded history, that this is truth, brethren. Again, this is something that we, <coughs> we can lean on, we can trust, we can believe in, and we can know that for sure God is going to do his bidding concerning this, this, uh, this work that he's working out here in the sixth vial. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse number 10 there again, the recorded inspired word of God as Moses was led to write this. And a river went out from Eden to the water of, to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, uh, that is uh, which compasses the whole land of Hilva, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there is uh, Delium, an onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekiel. Uh, that is the, that which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so there it is again. From the very beginning, we see again the oldest recorded river that we have in human history. And again, we see it here in the book of Revelation. Look what God did. Again, I said it was the oldest recorded, one of the oldest recorded rivers in history. But also, again, brothers, we remember, don't we, brethren, I should say that, how important the land was that God gave to the children of Israel, how he divided it up amongst the tribes and how he said they were never ever, what, to move their landmarks, to do away with them. There's a glorious purpose in all of that, brethren. And again, we see here it recorded, God gives it as a, a portion, if you will, a boundary of their land. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Again, just a couple of verses here concerning this river. I think it's so interesting that God, again, is using it and will use it here for his glory even clear on into the book of Revelation. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Look there, if you would, at verse number 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet full. And it, uh, and it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoke furnace, uh, furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day that the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham, saying unto thee, uh, unto thy seed, which I have given thee this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river, what? Euphrates. So again, he again is laying out this, uh, this glorious property, this boundary, this land that he has given unto the descendants. In fact, in Deuteronomy, and it goes, it goes on and on. It's mentioned again. It's so important that the Lord uses this, and he does the same here in the book of Revelation. As I said, for the second time in the book of Revelation, uh, the great river Euphrates comes to the center stage. Amen. It is again used by God for his judgments. And again, this is a glorious thing that God is doing. It always is. It has by his design, and again, brethren, as we're moving along here, and again, depending on your position, depending on how you see the nation of Israel, I believe that it is still something that God is dealing with the nation of Israel, obviously, um, in the book of Revelation, and he will continue to do so as he providentially here dries it up, just completely dries up the river, which 
again, will come into play here shortly in our text. Look back to Revelation chapter 16. Look what he does. There's always a purpose for what God does, and this is no different. Again, this is a unique vial in, if you will, these judgments, because again, it wasn't directly upon humanity, but it is indeed being used by God for his purposes to bring about his glorious end, and we're going to see that here. Look at Revelation chapter 16. Look at verse number 12 there. Again, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings from the east might be what? Might be prepared. What is God doing? He's preparing the way for these kings from the east to gather them together as he brings them together as we're going to see, again, God's glorious plan that he's working out here. God's drying up of the Euphrates rivers, again, is not an act of kindness here not by any stretch of the imagination towards the kings of the east, but rather it is indeed one of judgment. From the east, brethren, literally means from the rising of the sun. God has utilized this exact language in Scripture on numerous occasions, brethren, again, as you see this here. See, John, again, is writing. He's a what? He's a Jewish convert, and so he is continually, as he is led by the Spirit of God, to think in Jewish terms, to write uh, a lot of these things in a Jewish mindset, if you will. And so this is what he does here. And I want you to see this again, this whole idea of from the east, literally meaning the rising of the sun. Look with me, if you would, how Isaiah records this. Look at Isaiah chapter 46. Again, just a couple of them here. Again, as we as we always do, right, brother? We systematically study the Bible. We look at it and say, all right, what does that mean? Can the Bible explain it to me? Can it tell me what it means? Yes, it does. It always does. And it always will. If we study a little bit, if we allow the scriptures to speak to us as we ought, right, exegetically, what's the text? What are we getting out of the text? What is it saying to us? Look at Isaiah chapter 46 in a very real way in a very real sense we remember this portion of scripture look at verse number nine Isaiah chapter 46 look at verse number nine again this exact language that he's using here in the book of Revelation remember the former things of old I, I love this text don't you guys I mean I just love God declaring who he is amen and that he is the God and the king of kings he says remember the former things of old for I am God and there's none else I am God there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet uh, done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. So again, amen, whatever God deems to be done, whatever he thinks to be done, whatever he commands to be done, he will do it. Look what it is. What is he talking about here? He's talking about verse number 11. Now, we've looked at this verse on several occasions. You know who God is speaking of here, and it's fact what? 300 years before the Babylonian captivity even comes into existence. But I want you to see what God is doing. Look at verse number 11. Calling a ravenous bird from the what? From the east. There's that language again. Literally from the rising of the sun. He's calling who? Who is, who is he speaking of here, brothers? It's Wednesday evening. You can tell me who it is, right? It was Cyrus, right? Cyrus the king. He's calling him out. He says, I'm going to call a ravenous bird from the east. Literally from the rising of the sun. This is what John is saying in the book of Revelation. These kings will come from the east, literally from the rising of the sun, this terminology that's used. In fact, it's used over and over again, but look at one here. Well, we call it the New Testament, but it isn't under the New Covenant yet. Look at the book of Matthew. Let me show you here again where this exact language is used. 
um, to describe, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. The same language over and over again. We see this throughout Scripture. Look here. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east. Do you see that there? There's that same language again. There it is from the rising of the sun. The wise men came from the east, the rising of the sun. This is what John is saying. There are kings who are going to be coming from the east, literally as we know, right? It rises in the east and sets in the west. And so uh, John here again is revealing under the inspiration of God that there's going to be some kings who are going to be gathered together who are definitely going to be coming from the east, that direction, from the rising of the sun, if you will. There's no mistaking it. And brothers, you think this isn't important now, but it comes definitely deep down into play when we get a little farther along here into the book of Revelation. This is important because it goes to the truth of God. It goes to the truth of his prophecies. It goes to the truth of who he is and what he says. And so, again, laying the foundation for this truth. The kings from the east, literally from the rising of the sun, and their armies will indeed be gathered, brethren, unto an ordained deadly slaughter. This is a stunning thing to consider as you look at the text, as we see what God is doing here again. As they cross the divinely evaporated, that's just terminology I came up with, the divinely evaporated river Euphrates. When, they are, when God is preparing the where he's drying up the river so that by when they come, there's going to be a clear and quick and definite way that they can arrive from the east going to where God is going to draw them to. It is, again, God's glorious plan as they arrive at the right time to their just and deserved destruction. Where is he taking them? Where, is that, where are they going to end up? Well, look at verse 16 of our text. We'll get back there at Revelation chapter 16. Where ultimately, what is God's purpose? What is his glory in all of this? What is his glorious doing here concerning the text? Look at Revelation chapter 16. Look at verse number 16. This is what he's doing. This is what he's preparing them for. Look at verse 16 there, if you would. You've got to get in the right chapter here. And he gathered them together. Don't fool yourself. That's not God that did that. We're going to look at that. God didn't gather them there, but God used Satan to gather them there. And he gathered them there together into, what, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Does anybody remember? We looked at it before. What does the term Armageddon mean? It literally means what? The hill of slaughter. It also has something to do with Megiddo, but it is in, in, in real terms the hill of slaughter, if you will. And so this is what God is doing. He's drawing up the Euphrates River. He's preparing the way for these kings and the armies to come where he is going to absolutely obliterate them like they've never been obliterated before. This battle, this war that is coming, it really is. Now, it is interesting that our religious affections here are drawn to the biblical truth that God once indeed did, did he not, part the Red Sea. You remember what he did there? Way back in Exodus, he parted the Red Sea. Now, Howard, if I ask you tonight, could you tell me and describe the ground for me? When he said he parted the Red Sea, what did he say? What did they, what did they go over on, brother? Dry ground. They went across on dry ground. Now, think about this for a moment. He parted the Red Sea. He dried the ground up so that his people, 
would be able, if you will, would be able to beat feet through the Red Sea. That's terminology for today. But they went through the Red Sea on dry ground to escape what? To escape their destruction. You notice what God's doing here? He dried up the Euphrates River so that they can cross over on dry ground to their destruction. Brethren, do you see that? That's why this is so important because I get goosebumps. We think about how evil things are. And I was sitting here earlier as I was just kind of going through my notes again. And there's something that just wells up inside of you when you understand what God is doing, his glorious victory. Brethren, the days are not too far away. They are not too far away. Let me tell you, this is the glorious thing as we finish our text up tonight when Jesus interrupts in verse 15 and speaks in the middle of these horrible judgment that's taking place. It's amazing to listen to him and what he says. Behold, I come what? I am coming. And he's, uh, there's a dual purpose for him. All of a sudden, in verse 15, in the middle of it, just speaking. I mean, it's quite an amazing thing, isn't it? The Euphrates are dried up by God's hand which allows his enemies to take flight on dry ground to their destruction. And this is exactly what John is recording. This is what he's telling us about, brother. Now look there, if you would, at verse number 13. So the way is being prepared. And then John, he sees this, and he writes in verse number 13 these words. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, brethren, again, we're going to look at this, but John was, again, a converted Jew, and so him using frogs to describe what he's seeing is very, very apropos. It's very, very uh, needful here. And out, come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Again, brethren, John sees three unclean spirits, which are indeed the spirits of devils. There's no question about this. Brothers, you've got to start thinking about deception now. Because this is what's going to be taking place, except it's not God's people who are being deceived. It's the kings of the earth and all of the earth. They're actually, God is using and spinning that around to deceive the people of the earth so that when they come, amen, they will come irresistibly. It's a stunning thing to behold. It really is. But this is what you see. He describes their vileness, these spirits of devils. Uh, by using the term frogs, he likens them to frogs. Frogs, as you remember, were what? Unclean animals in the Old Testament. To a Jew, he would never touch one. He would never go near it. And so John just simply, this is how vile they are. These spirits that I'm seeing, they are so vile, I'm going to describe them like frogs. And that word unclean, and we've seen it over and over again, that word unclean literally means lewd, foul. Listen, brethren, deceitful deceptive, dirty, and filthy, which, of course, are common New Testament, right? They're common, that's common New Testament, if you will, monikers for demons. John corresponds here, amen, the three spirits with the three personages of the anti-trinity. That's what he does here, amen, is God has a trinity, so we've looked at this briefly. The devil also tries to counterfeit with his anti-trinity. And this is what John is doing. He's corresponding these three spirits with the personages of the trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now you remember, because we've touched on this some time ago, that the dragon is Satan and the devil. Do you remember what both of those names mean? Now you've got to remember, this is coming out of the mouth. What does the mouth speak? The mouth speaks what your heart is. Amen. It speaks of who you are, what you're made of deep down inside. And 
of course, Satan and the devil, if you will, there, they describe his deceptive mouth. His speaking is vile and evil. You remember the beast. This is the second, if you will, personage of the evil, unholy trinity here that John is describing. And the beast, of course, as we have seen, is known for his mouth full of what? Blasphemy. He blasphemes God. One's a liar. One lies about God. One is a blasphemer of God. In fact, look at Revelation 13, just again by way of reminder. The beast here. Again, we have looked at this. I don't want to spend a lot of time but because we spent some time on it here. But I just by way of reminder, I want you to understand why John would say they're like frogs, unclean, unholy, filthy, untouchable animals. Look there if you would. Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse number 6. And he opened his mouth in what? Blasphemy against God and blasphemed his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell there. Who is that? That's the beast. Also, if you will, you remember the false prophet, which, by the way, uh, he's referenced here, but he's John for the first time specifically in our text calls him the false prophet. It's never called him. He's never called him that before, but he's referred to here. If you look there, if you would, at verse number 11, look what he does. So we got really Satan. We got the dragon. We got uh, the beast, and now we have the false prophet. And what does the false prophet do with his mouth? Again, we saw this with his evil tongue. Look there at verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a what? As a dragon. And so again, we see this, brethren. This is such an evil, vile thing that John is writing about concerning what they are saying about God. And about what he is doing. They are full of blasphemies, full of lies, and full of just the utter and gutter worst things you can think of concerning who God is. These unclean spirits proceed from the mouths of the unholy trinity. And brothers, listen, listen, this is again. And will deceptively lead men to an uncontrollable and unconditional, amen, desire for evil. Think of that for a moment, brethren. This is the deception. This is what's taking place. Think of being led to your own slaughter, and all you do is go to your own slaughter. This is exactly what we're going to see happen. This is what God is doing. He's preparing through this vial, this glorious victory, this glorious slaughtering of his enemies and the kings from the east. And look at verse 14 there, if you would, in Revelation 16. So, He's laying the groundwork. We've got the unholy trinity here. We've got the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. In verse 14, again, he ties them together. There's no wondering what verse 13 or what they're doing or who they are. Look what he says. For they are what? Spirits of devils working miracles. Look, brethren, again, we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to try and, well, let's see if we can allegorize what this is. No, John tells us what it is. They are indeed the spirits of devils working miracles. Now, again, as I said, this is a most interesting verse to me. As the spirits of devils perform their miracles before the kings of the earth, it's an amazing thing. They are doing it in order to draw them into the battle. This is what's so interesting about this text. Remember, we're worried about us as Christians being deceived, and we should be, and we need to be. Not here. It is indeed the devil himself, turning it and deceiving the world and deceiving the kings who are going to be drawn into this battle, if you will. We take note that this description is so complete, it is so powerful, 
that the kings, and this is what's glorious about this, is that the kings actually believe that they are doing their own will. It's a stunning thing. When you study this deep down, it's an amazing thing. They actually believe that they are the ones doing it, that they are the ones that are following their own will to go into this battle of Armageddon into their own slaughter. It is an amazing thing. But it is in fact, brother, these lying spirits in verse 14 that uh, John is telling us about who are indeed, if you will, bringing them forward for God's purposes. Now you have to remember that even in their rebellion, every act, everything they do, everything that's taking place, brethren, is ordered and ordained by God. All of this, even, we don't have time. If we had time, we could go into the Old Testament, couldn't we, brothers? You guys could quote them for me. How many times, brother? Did God use an evil spirit to do his work, to do his bidding? Think of that. Just think of it for a minute. If you had time, you, it would blow your mind the number of times that he would command an evil spirit just to go and do his bidding. Do we have an evil? Yeah, I'll go do it. Amen. This is what we have going on here. Sovereign God again, using these things for his glory and for his purposes and for his ends. Again, I don't know about you. But that comforts me greatly. I don't want an evil world that is just running loose and nobody has any control over it. I don't want any of that. I don't want to be a part of that. And these people here definitely are going to see what it's like when God, or when God ordains his, his will and his, and his portion to be done. Now look at verse 16. Again, so verse 14, he's, these Spirits of devils are working miracles. They're deceiving like crazy. Now, verse 16 says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon, the Mount of Slaughter. It isn't God. It is God in a, in a sovereign way. But it is actually the deception that the spirits are laying on these kings and on the people of the world that is actually drawing them in for this slaughter. He is Satan there. He's the one who is... Flipping the script, if you will. It's just like you think about, <laughs> I was talking to one of my customers. Now, this is on such a, a minor scale, but it, it reminded me of that. We were talking about uh, just the, like the liberal cities in our nation. Think of this for a moment. Think of how crazy things have gotten. How evil they have gotten. How they are willing to let all of this stuff happen as long as it's not in their state. <laughs> As long as it's in Texas or it's in Florida or it's somewhere else, they're fine with that. But as soon as it comes to their state, they have a problem. Soon you're now, you're not loving. You're this, you're that. All of these things, brethren. It flips on them because evil always flips on you. And God will bring it to pass. He's doing it here. He's flipping it. He's using these evil spirits to bring about his glorious end. In fact, I found this interesting. Because, again, this comes into play really heavily in Revelation chapter 19. I want you to turn there because while these evil spirits are busy gathering the kings of the earth and the enemies of God together for battle, I want you to see what another angel is doing. What another angel is gathering and what he is preparing these people for. In fact, it's revealed in Revelation 19. Just turn over a couple of chapters again keeping in mind brother it's stunning while the kings of the earth and all the enemies of god 
are gathered together by the spirits of devils. This angel is actually preparing them for what God is going to do. Look here at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse number 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with, cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together. Amen. Again, keeping in mind in our text, this is where this thing starts to really get unleashed. The demons are gathering theirs. And God is busy over here calling this angel, gathering the fowls for what? What is he gathering them for? Look there, if you would, that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Why? Why is he gathering? Why is the angel gathering the, the flocks in the air, if you will? Well, verse 18 tells us that they may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of the men, both free and bond, both small and great. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat, brethren, against, uh, sat on the horse and against his armies. Hmm. See, brethren, really what God is doing here again. He is sovereignly moving. He is directing every act. He's directing everything that's happening, including the spirits that John has seen. He's, they're actually deceiving and drawing. He's making the way for this glorious victory that God is going to have earthly upon his enemies. You notice there, too, brethren, that John tells us very succinctly that it is the great day of God Almighty. It's a glorious statement, a glorious revealing there of what it is. It's not the great day of men. It's not the great day of kings. It's not the great day of princes, brethren. It is indeed the day of the Lord. It is the great, awesome, and mighty day of God when he will indeed be victorious. And I don't know about you. But, man, I get goosebumps when I think about that again. We think of the evil, and we talk about our brothers and the things that are happening to them. And for God to bring his vengeance upon his enemies is something that, I'm sorry, I, I know we're supposed to pray for him, and I, I try to do that. But I want to see God in his victory, don't you? I want to see God victorious over his enemies. That's what this drives me to. It just continually drives me to see God as he is going to be victorious and glorious over all of his enemies look there how he how he finishes up verse 14 in revelation 16 look how he does that there again it's not the great day of princes the great day of the antichrist the great day of the beast it is indeed the great day of god almighty look there how he finishes verse 14 for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of god almighty Again, brethren, this is a glorious glimpse into what God is doing. Now, interestingly enough, verse 15 is plastered right between verse 14 and verse 16. I want you to read that together. We'll just finish this up quickly. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. What a glorious thing as we look at this text together. Right on the heels of this judgment, the sixth vial, a heavenly announcement and reminder is being made. It's really quite a glorious thing. 
the voice of Christ breaks through the horrors of what's taking place. And literally, I mean, when this gathering, when this thing is put together, here in verse 15, Christ just breaks through it all. And again, as I said, he says and he announces a great reminder. As a warning first to the rebels, if you will, and a holy stimulation to the elect of God. That's really what verse 15 is. If you look at it succinctly, you'll see that that's exactly what Jesus does. To the rebels, the Bible, or Jesus tells them here he's coming as a thief. Why is he coming to the rebels as a thief? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the beginning of the end is a complete surprise to them. You know why this is a complete surprise to them? Because they're unbelievers. They don't believe a whit about what God has said. They don't believe anything. In fact, we've seen them, haven't we? Even when they know it's the God of heaven, what are they doing? They're shaking their fists at God. This is a total and complete surprise to them because they've looked out. They've always seen things. They've always, just like the good liberals do today, amen. It's just, well, things just keep going on and on. Brethren, they're going to stop. This evil cannot continue. God will not allow this. He will not just turn his face away. And he's not doing it here either. He never has and he never will. It's an amazing thing. Here is God. Stunningly, isn't it? They're not expecting it. And so what happens to them? It indeed arrives as a thief. Just as Jesus said. He's warning those reprobates who are on the earth. He's just saying to them, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming, and it's going to be soon, brother, and amen. And if we read there, again, I'll just give you the verse tonight because we've got to finish up. But, no, I want to read that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, let's just read that together. And I want you to see the distinctions that Paul makes that are made here in this glorious portion of Scripture. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. But, again, Paul as he's led by the Spirit of God, writes these things. Brethren, let me just say this. If his return, if his second coming is a surprise to you and it comes as a thief to you, you are lost. You understand that. Because the believers, those of us who have trusted in Christ, amen, those of us for now, all of these dispensations of time have been waiting for his coming. It's called the imminent return. And what he's doing here is he's, he's warning the liberals. Well, if I can call them that. He's warning the unbelievers I'm coming. And he's encouraging, if you will, the believers. And we see that distinction made in our text. Do unbelievers watch? Do un are unbelievers clothed? in their garments, in the righteousness of Christ? Are unbelievers standing naked in their sin? Yes. Yes. He's telling them, I'm coming as a thief to them, but not to you, brethren. To those of us, as he says, be watchful. Be dressed in the garments. Be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's our salvation. Look at verse 1. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. There it is again. For when they shall say peace and safety. Isn't it funny, brethren? I don't want to get sidetracked. But isn't it interesting? The more they reject Christ and the more they've rejected God, even in our, this, this principle is just alive and well. Even as they have done that continually more and more and more, what do they keep saying? Oh, we have peace now. We're at peace. 
peace, peace. There is no peace when the king of peace is not your savior. Amen? This is what we're saying. This is what Paul is saying. He's coming as a thief in the night. For when they shall sow peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, he's talking to believers. Ye, brethren, he says, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Again, he's making that distinction. A true believer is not going to be overtaken by the coming of Christ. Because the true believer is what? He's watchful. He's waiting. He's looking. He's anticipating the return of Christ. Even in our own dispensation of time. The imminent return of Christ is a glorious doctrine for the church. It's amazing. Verse 5. Ye are all children of light. The children of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. So he makes, again, this glorious distinction of when Christ comes, there's these, uh, if you will, these elect. In fact, this is where we're at. This is the scene that we're seeing here. He's making an announcement. He's pronouncing something. And he's stimulating the believers who have been waiting and watching. Again, as we close, his second coming, as I said, has down through the dispensation of time been imminent. Here in our text, it is made immediate. He is at the door. He is coming very quickly. And brethren, listen, the second part of that scripture has to do with the elect. He's encouraging the elect. He's stimulating them. He's telling them all that we've been waiting for. The wait is over. The elect. The thing we're all waiting for is finally coming to fruition when he returns. The elect's waiting is over. That's what he's telling them here. And let's close with this verse. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Do you remember this cry that was made way back here? In Revelation chapter 6, look at verse number 9. And we had opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Brethren, that's gone. It's coming now to fruition. They asked how long. It's now coming to an end in our text as we move along. How long, O Lord? Right now, immediately, not imminently, but now, I'm coming. I'm at the door, as he said. Look at there, as they said. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge your blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Brethren, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the fruition. We're seeing God bringing that to pass. When John says, are you clothed? Yeah, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This, brethren, is a description of a believer. The unbelievers don't watch. They could care less. They're unbelievers. But the true believer has always. And even the elect in heaven are waiting for this glorious day to take place. Even them. And we see that here in our text um, this evening. The wait, indeed, is over.
So practically speaking, as we close, what can we glean from all of this, brethren? Well, number one, number one, it is a beautiful thing to literally interpret this text. It is a beautiful thing to not allegorize things away and to make it say things that it just doesn't say. To have it say things and draw things in there that it just doesn't do. It is a glorious thing to see, again, God's faithfulness, his track record from the book of Genesis all the way, brethren, to our text this evening. It's a glorious promise. It's a glorious promise to those who are living or those of us who will see, amen, we will see the judgment of God. We will see his glorious return because he said, I'm coming soon. I'm coming again. And indeed he will, amen. All right, let's pray together this evening. Father, we again thank you for the word of God this evening. Thank you for um, keeping it for us, for preserving it down through the ages of time. That we were so blessed this evening and we blessed every week on Sunday mornings to hear the preacher preach, whether it's me or Dean or how, just to be able to open the word of God and to have it in our hands. We are so grateful this evening for that. We're thankful for the words that John was led by the spirit of God to write. We thank you that we see in them your sovereign hand at work, bringing all things and using all things for your glory and for your purposes. And Father, now tonight as we depart this place, as we go to work tomorrow, I think, uh, again, Howard, somebody mentioned it this evening as we pray for opportunities. This portion of Revelation should indeed, just, just like Jesus, stimulate the believer to preach the gospel at every open door. Every opportunity that God will give, we need to be faithful in that. Preach the gospel. As we see, and all the more, <laughs> amen, as we see the day approaching. Father, now we pray your blessing upon your people. May your face shine upon them, and may you give them true biblical peace. We ask and pray all these things now in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.